Welcome to Spirit Behind the Screen. Each episode, your host, Marty McCurdy, deep dives on industry trends around high-reliability electronics and the supply chain in aerospace and defense. This is Episode 7 with Alex Leto, who talks with Marty about EPC's gallium nitride products and reliability. Good day, listeners. My name is Renee Yager, and I am the Director of Marketing at Efficient Power Conversion. And I'm here today with Alex Lido, who is the CEO and co-founder of Efficient Power Conversion, and also with Marty McCurdy, who is the CEO of Spirit Electronics, a distribution partner to EPC and EPC Space. And we're here today to talk about on the topic of reliability of gallium nitride transistors and ICs. Welcome, Alex, and welcome, Marty. Thank you. Hi. Uh, hi, Alex, and thank you, Renee. Um, Alex, it's been a while since we sat down, and uh, it's nice to see you electronically. It's been a while since we've had any um, FaceTime. I look forward to when we can have FaceTime again. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, we'll get right to it for our listeners, but uh, I, I'm thrilled to have a discussion with you on the reliability testing uh, test to fail. So if you ever, you know, sit down with uh, Zef Malik, our VP of Strategic uh, Business Development, he will get on a soapbox about that. And um, really, we feel like that's the, the go-to strategy for all the products that we have to do for screening and qualification. So I'd like to dive into that, if you don't mind. Um, I would love you know, it. Where were you? Great. So where were your thoughts on going there? Did you have some industry push? Or uh, was this just you know, you're also soapbox on knowing that this is the, the best way to get to, you know, a, a reliability substantiated product that you're, you're looking to get to. Well, I, there are really two things. First of all, I was one of the early people in power MOSFETs. And in the early 80s, we were competing against bipolar transistors. And of course, the older, the people in the older technology kept throwing up you know, I'll say, you know, innuendo about reliability of these uh, MOS devices, whatever. And so uh, we initially started doing test to fail uh, because we felt that that would tell us the, the best points at which our parts might be weaker and allow us to uh, make them more robust. And of course, today, I think everybody acknowledges that MOSFETs are a very robust technology uh, in certainly in the commercial world. Uh, so uh, when we came into GAN, gallium nitride at the, uh, you know, 20, 2009, 2010, same thing happened. All the established MOSFET players say, oh, hey, be careful that gallium nitride, that's weird stuff. Uh, so we, from the very early days, uh, and based on the experience in power MOSFETs, uh, figured that uh, just using silicon qualification data wasn't going to be enough because people would still be scared. We started blowing stuff up, uh, and in blowing stuff up, we learned how to make it a whole lot better. And uh, we're now in our fifth generation, and I'd say that we are somewhere between 10 and 100 times more reliable than power MOSFETs in commercial applications, and probably uh, 100 times more than that in space applications. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's great news, and and you know, as we all know that we service the aerospace defense market and uh there's always the the subject of of heritage and flight so this kind of data definitely speaks to the you know the the NASA JPL 
engineering type decision makers out there to give them that comfort level and what I call the insurance policy right on uh, on whether or not they want to fly the GAN. Um, I have a question for you. We usually find out some very interesting things about products that we're screening to failure, uh, you know, like some of the FPGAs and memory and things like that that we are asked by our, our customers to uh, do extensive qualification on above and beyond off-the-shelf kind of stuff. And um, we always find that the the data that we get just prior to failure is the most valuable. So, do you did you experience any of that, or or what can you share about the the process of getting to the failure point? So, I, I think it depends on exactly the stressor. Um, and if you look at uh, EPC's Phase Twelve Reliability Report, which just came out a few weeks ago, uh, and it's on our website, uh, we have a catalog of all the stressors, mechanical and electrical stressors that you could apply to a GAN device in any way. You know, thermomechanical, fast rise, slow rise, all this stuff is on there. And each and every one of them has a specific way to tease out how to make it fail. Um, and uh, depending on that, you know, some of the failures are abrupt. Some of them are, um, as you suggested, you can see a signature uh, as it's leading into failure. Um, but the, the main issue is uh, what is the fundamental mechanism? Uh, of, of failure. And diving into that, into the root cause of failure, has really been a journey uh, because the, the more layers you peel away, the more that are there. Um, and, and I'll give you just one, one quick example, you know, gates. You know, in a MOSFET, the gate is silicon dioxide and, you know, you put a voltage on the gate and the gate pops eventually. And well known, lots of literature called time-dependent dielectric breakdown. Put a certain voltage on after a certain amount of time, oxides fail. And gallium nitride, sure enough, we got a, a signature that looked just like time-dependent dielectric breakdown, even though our breakdown, our, our gate is made out of silicon, or made out of gallium nitride. Uh, and uh, so we're very happy using that model uh, for a while. Uh, but uh, through failure analysis, we saw that there were a few particular spots where the gates failed. And it had nothing to do with the gallium nitride. It had to do with a silicon nitride layer. Um, but the more we looked into it, the time-dependent dielectric breakdown model didn't fit with the silicon nitride exactly. We dug in deeper and deeper. We found a whole new mechanism called impact ionization. Uh, and uh, then we went back through the physical models uh, using actual physics parameters and were able to far more accurately model uh, the time and voltage dependence uh, and temperature dependence of our gates uh, in, in a, a way that, you know, was sort of a surprise. Um, and we've done that now with, with the key stressors, taking it back to physical parameters as opposed to just fitting a model or looking phenomenologically at why things fail. We actually want to know what's the physics and how does the physics predict this will behave over all conditions. Uh, and, and now we've actually achieved that in, uh, in the electrical properties. It's, it's quite exciting, actually. It is exciting. I, I'm always interested in the key stressors, uh, looking for other applications out here to support our, you know, our military and, and defense market is that, um, you know, was there any, uh, of course I see there's absolute, and I hear in your voice, the joy of, of doing the work. So I guess, you know, one of the questions are, uh, I'm sure our audience is wondering, why did EPC do it? And, and, and I would say it's because you could, right? I mean, it's... Uh, well, because we can make better devices. Yeah, uh, 
exactly. Yeah. Let me give you let me give you a specific example. Um, you know, in one of our earlier generations, um, the on resistance. There's something called dynamic on resistance in gallium nitride, something that has had an emotional uh, uh, connection to a lot of people because they don't like to hear about something that changes over time. Um, and very early on, we actually were able to image hot electrons getting trapped using, uh, because when they trap, they emit a photon and we imaged the photon. And so we could see exactly where it was occurring on our device and under what conditions. And by dialing it up and down, we could make it happen or go away. And in so doing, we were able to completely redesign. And in our uh, latest generation devices, we redesign them so that you don't have that trapping mechanism anywhere inside the normal operating conditions. Uh, and and that, that's a big deal. Uh, and then we went into the fundamental physics behind this whole trapping mechanism, which you can see in our phase 12 report, and we can characterize it over all times and temperatures. And what's, what's interesting and contrary to uh, most people's intuition is uh, trapping actually gets, uh, goes down with temperature. So in other words, if you're doing typical high temperature reverse bias testing or, or you know, take them up to most temp uh, highest temperature and highest voltage, you're actually masking the primary failure mechanism in gallium nitride. It's so, fascinating, truly. Yeah. So do different kind of testing. And, and, and we discuss that in our, in our reliability report. Mm -hmm. So was there any point where, uh, you know, you held a constant like the voltage or the temperature and then went to failure with the other? So in other words, let's say, for example, that you held voltage uh, steady, but the increase in temperature uh, went to failure, possibly to maybe exercise the GAN, you know, beyond its limit to see if there's other applications out there that we haven't touched yet, you know, getting into that. 220 degree downhole kind of thing, or, you know, maybe the Europa way out freezing, or, you know, did any of that come into play on phase 12 on the rail report? Uh, so, yes, actually, we, we showed even in the phase 11, um, we uh, put unlimited current through our devices to see where they would fail in temperature space. Um, and on our latest generation devices, that's 1000 degrees centigrade. And it's actually a very tight uh, distribution right around a thousand degrees. Um, the one thing that we've learned about gallium nitride is because it's wide band gap. Wide band gap really means that there is a very uh, a much stronger bond between the elements in the crystal. In this case, gallium and nitrogen. And because mm -hmm. of that, um, temperature effects are are much reduced in gallium nitride compared to silicon. Uh, so almost all the the failure mechanisms we see are are um, flat with temperature, very little change with temperature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to know. Great, uh, you know, opening up some new markets, if you will. Or, you know, I know we're we're both uh, big advocates of uh, electric vehicles, so maybe, you know, we can drive those in Alaska and in the Sahara at the same time. So, No problem um, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I have a – I wanted to touch on one other area that I know that you uh, – included in the phase 12 report 
is the safe operating area, kind of to give the guideline out there of, hey, you know, if your application is specific to, you know, these kinds of stresses, that this is a, I call it the, again, back to, you know, that insurance policy that this works here, maybe to alleviate some of the, the remaining apprehension of GAN out there in the, in the mill aerospace. Um, can you touch on the safe operating area and maybe what kind of, a, you know, a, uh, parameters and uh, and um, you know what limitations or or you know how you came up with that particular safe operating area. I guess is there a buffer? Is the question? So uh, safe operating area typically is looking at devices um, over their entire um, you know um, operating conditions in voltage and current space. So you tend to have a safe operating area graph. Um, and in, uh, in that graph, you have a maximum current, uh, which is usually a horizontal line, and then you have a maximum voltage, which is usually the rated voltage on a vertical line. Um, and at very short pulses, the two of them intersect in a, in a rectangle. But as you go to longer and longer pulses, uh, in order to accommodate the heating of the junction, you start seeing a, a, uh, a, a, um, a 45 degree line that starts coming closer and closer to the origin, which is the line of constant power, which is uh, translated into constant temperature at the surface of the device. Uh, so that's how the safe armory area uh, curves are constructed for all devices, silicon, gallium nitro, whatever. Now in MOSFETs, you have a secondary breakdown and it's from something called a spirito effect which relates to the fact that the threshold voltage starts going down with temperature as temperature goes up, and therefore parts of the device can start conducting more current, and therefore the threshold goes lower and then it conducts more current, and it's a runaway effect. And so mm -hmm. the Spirito effect gives you a second line as you get to higher voltages that is more uh, uh, at a bigger angle. Um, and that's where a lot of people get trouble because you know, in many switching conditions, you can get into that second breakdown area. Gallium nitride does not have a spirito effect. It's because the threshold voltage is not sensitive to temperature, one of those many wideband gap advantages. Um, and so you see a pure uh, um, safe operating area curve, which we show in the data sheet. And in our phase 11 and phase 12 reports, we repeat it showing the actual failure points above all the, the, the lines on the, uh, the data sheet limits. Yeah, that's excellent, especially, you know, heating of the junction, et cetera. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating on such a, a small interface that so much could be happening, truly. I, I right. appreciate the, uh, the, the look of the stresses, you know, look at the mechanical. Uh, let's switch gears and go to the mechanical stresses just because I know that, uh, you know, my team and your team have, have run into the various uh, – requirements for some high lead or something other than Rojas. So let's just touch base a little bit on the mechanical stresses that occur. And um, I know that there are Rojas uh, products out there, but you are getting uh, delivery of some high lead parts for us, and we appreciate that. And, and I know that we've been in a, a bit of a bind where we've had to do some, you know, stripping of the of the bumps or the bars and putting uh, you know, tin lead on there, which is always a bit of a, a wild card, if you will, just from an electrical standpoint from, you know, we call it the walking wounded if we're damaging the pads or whatever. But let's just touch briefly on, you know, the mechanical stresses to failure uh, that you performed on the phase 12. And, you know, do you see any 
variations between any of the Rojas or high lead that would be impacted by that. So uh, in, in the phase nine report, by the way, uh, so it's a few years ago, we actually did a, uh, a stress strain modeling of, um, of our parts. So it actually kind of goes again from physical parameters to what can you expect uh, from temperature uh, and temperature power cycling as well. In the phase 12 report, we did much more extensive work um, and what we've seen, you know, clearly it depends on your mismatch between your, uh, your circuit board, whether it be ceramic or, or uh, um, FR4 or, uh, or any of the other materials, and there are many other materials. Um, and that mismatch is the primary um, determinant of how long your parts will last under temperature power cycling. Now, in general, uh, you put lead into a part, um, if it's eutectic um, or if it's just high lead 95.5, those are pretty stiff compared to the, um, the Rojas, the SAC, uh, mm -hmm. the SAC 405s and, the, um, and, and just the tin silvers. Uh, and therefore, they are more prone to uh, failure under temp cycling and power cycling. Uh, but if you can match the substrate um, to the uh, to silicon better, as some ceramics are, um, then then you can get much longer lifetime. And also, for the first time in phase twelve, we characterize um, underfills and their impact on temperature and power cycling, and we give uh, basic parameters on what to use in an underfill to create a, a large extension, almost to infinity, of the temperature and power cycling capability. Wow, yeah, no, that's impressive for sure. Uh, and of course, the underfill is always a, a bit of a wild card. So I, I saw that in the report and I appreciate that. Um, well, I appreciate your time. I just wanted to wrap up maybe with uh, one more you know, quick chat on EPC space since that's you know prime for us. And uh, we have some opportunities to do radiation work on some of the EPC parts for a big customer for a satellite. So, you know, we're always willing to share our data out there. So I'm assuming that the the phase 12 report, how would that cross-pollinate to the, the EPC space side? And, you know, does that accelerate any, you know, existing or, or future products into the EPC space family of the catalog? Well, certainly what we learn there, we apply to our EPC space products. But we've done extensive test to fail in uh, high radiation environments. It is not in our reliability reports. Uh, and uh, for example, we've taken our parts out to 100 megarad uh, silicon gamma, uh, 10 to the 17th uh, proton and neutrons. Um, and in single event, uh, we have uh, exceeded the capability of all the cyclotrons on our 100 volt and 40 volt products. So they will not fail under single event at least we can't test it. In our higher voltage products, we can create failures, but above the data sheet limits. And those are areas where we're actually making improvements to make them more robust. And we've done that by actually creating a pinpoint ability to find out the points of failure using a laser beam that creates a two photon absorption uh, mechanism that simulates a heavy ion very well. And in so doing, we're generating a whole new generation of parts, which will be coming out later this year, that are even more robust under, um, under, under single event, well beyond 
87 let at uh, at full rated voltage. Well, we certainly will be excited to see that uh, coming in, and I, I know the industry. I'm glad we touched on it because I'm sure the industry is will be waiting to see that as well. There's uh, you know the always the latest and and greatest you know products out there that people want to experiment with. So. Alex, I really appreciate your time. I think it's been um, very informative. I, I always learn things from you whenever we get a chance to sit down. And uh, Renee, I appreciate you putting this together. Thank hey, you. Thanks very much, Marty. Thank you. It was really thanks, a lot of Marty. fun. Thanks for listening with Spirit this week. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast to let us know what you want to hear about in aerospace and defense. You can find out more about Spirit's value-added services and product lines at spiritelectronics.com.